0: (laughs) welcome to encounter the podcast from the wolf institute that gets down and granular with questions of religion and society today we're talking about music and religion I'm Ed Kessler and my guests today are Matthew Machin auterit a senior research associate at the Faculty of Music here in Cambridge, Junya Habash, a research fellow looking at Syrian music here at the Wolf Institute and an Encounter Vectrum and David Perry, known as the producer of this very podcast and a jazz specialist. Hey
1: everybody! Ed, how are you How are you doing? Did
0: you watch the football yesterday?
1: I did, which is rare for me, I never watched football. I quite enjoyed it. When you're off to London, don't you?
2: you? Tomorrow. tomorrow. Tomorrow? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Where are you going? A concert that's featuring Syrian poetry mm-hmm. and some Syrian music. Mm-hmm. The East-West Diwan. Oh, yes. oh, oh what yeah. They're called? Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Are they yeah. in London, are they? Yeah, they're performing tomorrow. Nice.
0: We'll be asking each other, what are the purposes of religious music? How does music interact with other forms of worship and belief? What role does music play in shaping lives within faith communities and so on? But before we get down and serious, musical instruments. Any of you? I mean, I, I, I was brought up playing the trombone, and it drove the house absolutely crazy. So that's my confession as far
3: as musical instruments are concerned. Come on, let's have some confessions. <laughs> I don't play any musical instrument and I can't read music. But I must confess that when I was an undergraduate here, I performed as a poet concrete with an avant-garde jazz group called Henry Cowell. And I sort of improvised poetry over a very demanding bed of jazz music. You'll be happy to hear I haven't brought a sample with me this morning, <laughs> <laughs> but, but that's what I did. My the, my instrument was my voice. Oh, and it still is, David. It still is. <laughs> that's
2: awesome. <laughs> um, I play a couple of instruments. So I, my principal is piano. I studied classical piano in college. What oh, yeah. what what level of I don't know how the UK system works, but I got a, a, a degree in uh, it. a degree? Oh. Yeah. It's pretty impressive, <laughs> David. So you can take that back. <laughs> Thank you. What about
1: you? Um, I'm a guitarist, classical guitarist from training, but I think the more and more I become an academic, the less and less I become a musician, to be honest. So I find very little time for, for practice. But yeah, I do still
0: play every right, right. now and then when I get And your 15 month old is going to be a classical
1: guitarist? or Who knows? Yeah, yeah, one of the best. Right. Hopefully. Right. hopefully, we'll see. Uh, what about your favourite? musical artists who I see know. that's that's tricky i think it changes <laughs> um i think as we're on the topic of my sort of research i'd have to say Paca de Lucia. so one of the best flamenco guitarists if not the best flamenco oh. guitarist the world has ever seen
2: yeah i think it depends on the genre for me right now and my mood also right now i'm really getting into jazz fusion and there's um this tunisian road player his name is dafer yusuf i don't know if anyone's heard of him He's really cool. He's doing a lot of fusion with East and West.
3: Uh, Alive or dead, or or either. (laughs) 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 Take your
0: choice, choice depends (laughs) on I
2: think I'd
3: go for Daniel Barenboim. We'll talk about him later, perhaps, his East West Devane Orchestra. And um, he speaks so well on the subject, and he's a world-class conductor, and he spends a lot of his time with this orchestra. Which he needn't do, but he does. Yeah, no, remarkable man.
0: Well, I think that brings us on to one of the questions I wanted to, to ask of uh, of you all, um, which is, to what extent there is. I mean, we know there's religious music, but is there such a thing as sort of Jewish music or Christian music or Muslim music? I know, you know, with Jewish music. You think of Fiddler on the Roof, but really, that's you know, <laughs> think about it, it's not very Jewish, right? But I mean, is there such a thing?
1: I mean, I would say no. I think fundamentally as we can't speak of you know Christianity or Islam or Judaism as a single homogeneous thing. Neither can we speak about musical practice as being, as being a singular thing. Christian music as being a singular thing, for example. There's so many diverse religious musical practices around the world, some of which may not even be constituted as music, which, of course, we'll, we'll talk about, I'm sure, at some point with, with the case of the call to prayer and, and Islam, for example. Um, so, no, I think it's difficult to speak of a single homogeneous thing that is Christian music islamic but of course there are shared characteristics okay you know there's certain things they shared repertoires and so on so I think this is why we so what, what what characteristic what what might be a Christian characteristic I think in terms of repertoire for example is often that you know certain texts that are used certain performance practices and so on and so forth that may be shared across different sects within any 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 religion
3: mm, yeah I've always st- as a great fan of evensong um, and this isn't my field at all, but it always strikes me that there's something very Hebraic about the antiphonal and response singing mm. and, and the recitation of the Psalms. And I was sort of reading up about this a bit. And if you think that Christianity was a, a Jewish sect originally. I presume that that tradition mm. has gone over mm. into the Christian tradition. Well, yeah, particularly in the, think about the Orthodox Christian tradition.
0: So um, I was in Kazakhstan recently and went to a Russian Orthodox service where there really was this, it, it felt almost temple-like actually. I, I, my sense was I was almost in the temple in Jerusalem yeah. with the sort of the movement of the priests and the procession and the calls and the community responses. It, it, it was very powerful actually. Yeah. What about in the, is Islam, didn't you? I mean, is there such a thing as Muslim music? You're a specialist, of course, in <laughs> the, in this area.
2: You know, I think I think it, as as Matthew said, it's there are so many different variations of musical practices, and I think it really is more kind of a regional thing, because mm. if you look at the Levant, for example, you know, there's something called classical traditional Arabic music that kind of spreads across the different faith confessions that are living there in that region together so like a Mizrahi Jewish service for example sounds very different from like an Ashkenazi service because they're picking up on the Arabic maqams Mm -hmm. that are used you know the modes of listening and and the scale patterns so yeah I think I think it's varied Um, or Sufi Traditional Sufi music, you know, is much more Turkish, you can say, than like this overarching Islamic uh, So it's regional. It's, it's more about it the is. region
0: than it is about the, the, the belief itself. You're nodding away there, Matthew.
1: Yeah, there are different um, denominations. I mean, Sufism is a very good example, mm-hmm. isn't it? I think the sorts of almost ritualistic practices that you associate with Sufism are often a far cry than the sorts of music in inverted commas that may be associated with Islamic religious practice in general. So yeah, I think denomination, region, all that is, you know, it's so diverse as music is so diverse, and religious music is. But there is such a thing as religious music. I mean, we'd be kidding
0: ourselves, wouldn't we, if we said it was all about the locale. So it's, mm. if you're an Arab, there's Arab music, whether you're a Muslim or a Christian or a Jew, or there's sort of East European music. It, 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 there is such a thing as religious music.
2: I think, I think the text maybe might be like kind of the foundational defining feature of something like that. Like if, if someone tells me what's Islamic music, I think about the paraliturgical songs like Sufi music, for example, who pick up on Quranic verses and then other very um, Islamic narratives in, in their poetry. That's what comes to my mind when someone tells me Islamic music.
3: Yeah, I, th- I think um, the interesting thing about that is that music can have text and music can be without text. Music operates, whether it's got text or not, it operates at a different level in in the brain and in your body and so on. And I think that's why music can be such a powerful influence in bringing people together, because it, it operates in that way. And it doesn't necessarily have to engage with something we've talked about before in these podcasts, which is the difficult texts that are in each... Tradition. they can be quite intimidating can't they yes. i'm just thinking of musical texts i mean you know our, if you
0: can't read music yeah. you, you said you couldn't read no, music, but no. yet at the same time you can love music and you, oh, can, yeah. you, you mm-hmm. can you can feel the music
3: mm-hmm. but th- there's a, a very interesting example um perhaps i could quote in 1942 deutsche Grammophon did a full version a studio version of bach's matthew passion and someone Believe it or not, someone had the audacity to um, take out some of the Jewish references from the text. So when the choir sing, we we look up to Zion in this version, they sing we look up to God, and that's an example of how powerful music can be. I mean, because people total, need to censor it. You yeah, mean, that's and why. that was, a, I mean, it's a shocking thing to hear if you listen to Bach. It's uh, and of course the Nazis thought Bach was okay because he was a pure German, whatever that is.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, <laughs> there's quite a lot of debate, isn't there, about Bach, you probably know this better than me, in terms of to what extent he's, he's influenced, you know, with the Passion plays and the um, yeah. St. Matthew's Passion and, and to what extent, you know, he's actually increased that sort of anti-Jewish, brought anti-Jewish elements into oh. librettos and things like that. Oh, right, yeah. um, we had a visiting fellow Michael Marison who did some research on this particularly mm. how, uh, how, how music can be used for this but I suppose on the other hand we, we began with talking about um, the east-west divan, music can also be a form of reconciliation, can't it?
1: Um,
0: And and I don't know, you you know, this is part of your work, of course, um, and whether it's a means of dialogue and encounter and bringing people together.
2: Yeah, I think there are definitely possibilities for doing that. I think of, like, the Pontanama Choir that came, for example, a few months back. They are a group from... um, Oh, gosh, the country. Bosnia? Bosnia, (laughs) yes. They are a a beautiful choir mixed with all three faiths, uh, Islam, Christianity, and and Judaism. And they use a bunch of repertoire. They use various repertoire from all three faiths and, and they sing together. And you know, when I saw them perform live, I mean, it was just such a moving experience to see people from all different confessions coming together, singing these songs, these traditional religious songs together. Particularly
0: out of the ashes of the war. Yeah, you know, And the absolutely. genocide. And, and I remember speaking to the, um, the, the conductor, Ivo Markovic, Father Ivo Markovic, and, and he was saying how difficult it was because the principle behind the Pontanama, which he he founded, was to get people to sing their enemy's song. Mm. So the idea of having Croat Catholics sing Serbian Orthodox or Muslim songs and so on, was a very, you know, he said actually people were sick, physically sick doing it, it it, was remarkable,
3: Mm. remarkable. And before that, you've got, um, Benjamin Britten's War Requiem, mm-hmm. which was written for and cast specifically for a German, British and a Russian soloist, and premiered in Coventry Cathedral. And what kind of reactions does that have? Do you know? A, a fantastic. I mean, amazing reaction. Um, and that, that is absolutely sort of top of the draw music, which is also very practically.
0: So is it designed the music, as a
3: reconciliation? But is it
0: the music, or is it the context of the music? In other words, you know, after the Bosnian War, um, you have the creation of Pontanamo and everyone knows that there is a diverse choir. But
1: it, it's the the moment that they're singing, it, rather than the music itself. Mm. Yeah, I think it's a, a. Sorry, did you want to go in on that, David? Or? No, go ahead. I think there's a number of factors. Obviously, the music in terms of shared repertoire. So there's a good example. Um, um, by Benjamin Brinner, who's worked on Israeli-Palestinian musical fusion projects and sort of how music can be used as a form of reconciliation in that way. And he talks about various factors to do with shared repertoires, so the music itself, also the idea of sort of shared histories and so on. Um, of course the context in which it's performed can be very um, important, and also political uses. Um, you know, sometimes cultural institutions, governments, for example, um, may use these sorts of projects of so-called reconciliation and, you know, promote them at wider levels and so on. I'm going to be a bit of a devil's advocate, though, because I think we need to be somewhat careful, because sometimes I think it's almost a sense of preaching to the converted, actually, I think sometimes, and the extent to which they can actually foster dialogue is is sometimes debatable. And unfortunately, music can also create boundaries. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And this is an important thing to keep in mind. Um, Just a random uh, sort of example off the top of my head is in Ireland and sort of Catholic-Protestant divides. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, non-religious music, such as Irish traditional music, have sometimes been sort of mapped onto Catholicism um, and can be seen as almost threatening to the idea of of Protestant and British Unionism. Do you see what I mean? So sometimes Mm. you can get music creating divisions rather than... But again, it's it's the 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 issue of being being
0: associated with something, isn't it? So it's not the the music per se. Exactly. It's it's association with a, you know, it's the same with national anthems though, isn't it? Yeah, You look at some of the language that's sung. We all sing, you know, vociferously, but actually if you look at the words, um, they can be pretty, um, pretty aggressive, can't they?
1: Yeah, very much uh, so. Yeah.
3: Well, I, I think the war Requiem is particularly interesting because it, it's, it's, it's a work of genius and yet it also has this very conscious wish to bring people together after the war and that, that's quite an unusual, that's a magnificent achievement, yeah. I
1: think. Yeah, absolutely. And I would never sort of no, no, go no, against you know, no. the, 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 the potential for music to overcome borders. So no, 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 no. yeah. I think it's phenomenal. but sometimes you need to take a critical perspective, I think, as well. I mean yeah.
0: tell us a bit about your experience, David, in terms of the jazz. Um, because that is a uh, music that's so associated with particular communities yeah. and the sort of Interaction the difficulties those communities have with the other communities. I mean, h- how does it work in terms of uh, in terms of jazz and religion?
3: I'd say that the origins of jazz are largely secular But in terms of this discussion it, it's been a fantastic sort of bringing together of communities um, not even consciously it's almost like a sort of chemical reaction that happened in the early years of the 20th century where black music became sort of put on to military and um, march music and popular music and there was it was a sort of rather strange almost like a chemical reaction Um, and it took place in new orleans because new orleans had a much more liberal attitude towards race and music and so on. And the rest of the Deep South was punishingly segregated and Jim Crow. So you had this sort of wonderful coming together, which musically is sort of imperfectly understood, but but you have like the marching 4-4 rhythm of the military bands, which is a bit like the colonial architecture of New Orleans, sort of four square. Mm -hmm. And on top of that you have syncopation which comes from the African slave music w- which developed into the blues. It's something very creative and very mysterious that happened almost despite itself, despite all the strictures of you couldn't have mixed-race recordings. Or maybe and they so, actually stimulated it, do you think? The, yeah, yeah the as, I, I it think. was it, forbidden? Yeah, it, I mean the first, what's reckoned to be the first Jazz record, which was 1917 by the original Dixieland Jazz Band, was four white guys who were very truculent and said, that oh, there's no black influence on in our music at all. So that's what they were up against, sort of thing. But um, there are some examples of early recordings, mixed recordings, where guys had to take black names. There was um, uh, someone who called himself Blind Willie Dunn. Eddie Lang, the guitarist, wanted to do a duet with a black guitarist. And he had to build himself as blind when he done because the distributors didn't want a mixed race record.
0: I remember reading uh, Eric Hobsbawne's autobiography. Yes. Um, an interesting life i think it's called and and so he's this sort of uh, secular marxist historian but who completely fell in love with jazz mm. and 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 that was his escape was into that that sort of a, arena so is, is there something about jazz that attracts i don't know roaming souls people on a journey people struggling with life mm. yeah. is that music i don't
3: know i, I think there might be i mean it was dubbed the, the devil's music wasn't it yes. And, and that's, I think it spoke to very sort of visceral emotions. But it's interesting also in jazz that um, some of the people who did most to bring the communities together were, were not in the least bit um, politically correct or even perhaps interested in black culture. They were just musicians who wanted the best. So, Benny Goodman, who was a real, before he became king of swing. He, did, he put together some chamber groups with Teddy Wilson and Lionel Hampton, which are superb, beautiful jazz. And he didn't give a damn what color they were. He just wanted the best people.
0: So it was a crossover of cultures rather than a crossover of religions, yeah. like you'd say. Yes,
3: yeah. you know. the, the, as it develops, you get a religious, it takes sort of gospel under its wing. Yes, cause and, I was going to ask about the gospel
0: music because that is explicitly religious, isn't it? Yes. You can't say there's a secular dimension to no, that. No. That is the sort of the exodus and this sort of liberation and, no. you know, that sort of power.
3: But that, that comes into jazz later on. It sort of becomes part that, of then? the, well, in, in the thirties it started to get into jazz right. and um, influence it. And then the black church tradition influences it a bit. But, but I'd say jazz is mostly a secular, Music.
0: Okay. You're going to fly the flag for secularism. Well, on this this occasion. Are there any echoes in the work that you do in terms of the sort of jazz?
1: I think, in terms of you've talked about sort of race and how some sort of white musicians pretended to be black musicians and probably vice versa and so on and so forth. I mean, there's been similar situations in flamenco as well in Spain. Um, So, flamenco is often associated with gypsy ethnicity. And you know it's often seen to be the musical product of you know, gypsies living in often quite you know harsh conditions within southern Spain in, in relatively closed-off communities. Of course, this is the narrative. <laughs> now, in reality, it's not simply a gypsy tradition, and a number of sort of Andalusian communities and groups have been involved in its formation. But throughout the 19th century, as flamenco started to become more sort of popular, popular and commercialised, the gypsy figure. Was very attractive. It was almost like a bohemian figure, and you found a situation where some what they called pale non-Gypsy flamenco artists posed as gypsies or performed like gypsies, adopted a gypsy style, and this still happens today. So often these sort of narratives become quite powerful about race, about ethnicity, and so on. And, and I suppose there's similar things with religion as well. Is that still continuing? Yeah, I would say I would say so. The, the sort of you might call this a gypsy orthodoxy is still quite prominent, right? Um, where you get this sort of link between flamenco authenticity and gypsy ethnicity. Now, this is, isn't, of course, to negate the influence of gypsy communities on flamenco, which, of course, has been massive. But to conflate the two yes. isn't, doesn't give you the whole story. And it's the cultural again, isn't it? Mm. We're
0: talking about almost cross-cultural studies here rather than any interreligious. Sure. That-
1: yeah. I mean, my current research is... Has a religious component to it, right? Like well, we're, we're going to get onto, we're that, going to in get onto that moment. <laughs> but in terms of <laughs> that's just in response to what David but, was saying. But in terms of the flamenco, that is, it is
0: the cultural uh, sort yeah, of I integration mean, of the sort of and you, you do is, is the correct term gypsy rather than Roma in in the Spanish yeah, context. Yeah, well, they use gitano. So, right, the, the right. Spanish so, in, in, so in the Spanish context, is it the, is it the sort of encounter of the gypsy
1: and the sort of wider Spanish society? Yeah, very, like, very, very much so. so. Yeah, yeah. Very much so. Right. Yeah. What about South America? Yeah, there's there's influences, um, South, South American influences. There's, of course, West Andalusia, the port town, you know, Seville, Cardiff and so on, were the jumping-off point for Spanish colonialism and you know encounters in, in Latin America. So it's inevitable that there would have been exchange. Um, and some people think that African slaves... May May well have actually influenced in some way the development of flamenco or at least similar flamenco styles so yeah there's there's a there's a link there with Latin America
0: what about the Catholic because you, you you know often associate Roman Catholicism with the whole Iberian Peninsula sure. and South America particularly in in this period mm. um, I mean there is a, a sort of the demographics of South America religiously are changing with the growth of Pentecostalism there but you know in this period it was predominantly Roman Catholic is there any sure. any Catholic influence on this music
1: yeah I mean in flamenco you do get some Sort of subsidiary repertoires that are deemed to be religious. La Sayeta is one. It's almost like, I mean, if you hear it, it might sound similar to The Call to Prayer. (laughs) But La Sayeta is seen as a religious repertoire within the flamenco genre as a whole, and it's often associated with gypsy communities as well. Um, So, yeah, there are religious repertoires and styles that are related to And can you identify predominantly, them? Predominantly, it's not a religious right, genre. Right, right, right. Can I identify them? Yeah. Yeah, if I heard it, it's the context in which it's performed as well. Yeah. It's often, they often stand on balconies and sing with a, a, a sort of picture of the Virgin Mary and so on. Um, so the context in which it's performed is you know, very it's obvious. There's <laughs> so much about
0: encounter is about the context. I mean, sure. this is something that yeah. we've we've heard. You know, didn't you? You've been a regular participant. That we've heard so many times about the context of a conversation or a meeting, or if something's offensive or not offensive. It's it's so much is about the context. You're listening to Encounter podcast from the Wolf Institute. My name's Ed Kessler, and we're going to have an interval. You're listening to a podcast from the Wolf Institute. What role does religious music play in your life? What artist do you think is breaking boundaries and can change the world? We'd like to hear your thoughts. Get in touch with us on the Wolf Institute Facebook page or email us at encounterpodcast at wolf.cam.ac.uk. Now back to the show. Welcome back to Act 2. Dunya, we were having this conversation over um, our glass of water. Um, <laughs> And and you were saying that that even though you were trained as a a classical musician or as a pianist, actually you'd never thought about music as a means of bringing people together, of cross-fertilization of of religions, ideas, cultures, and so on. I I thought it was really interesting.
2: Before coming on board to this project here, I had never really thought consciously about the elements that made up like classical traditional arabic music for example i recently discovered there is a halabi jewish man who started a band in the us right now his name is yusuf shamoun and you know he sings traditional syrian tunes and songs and you know any arab person listening to that would never think that oh he's a jewish man you know it's just syrian music uh, but actually a lot of of different faith confessions were involved in the industry of Arabic music making. Is
0: that a positive or a negative? Because sometimes when you you think about, say, Arab music, and and there are all these sort of, you know, whatever faith one is, whatever confession, almost whatever locale you come from, I'm related to you because I'm an Arab, Mm -hmm. uh, rather than the separation of those religions. So I just wonder whether the fact that he's identified in this case as a Syrian Jew is, is, is a positive or a negative. Sometimes it worries me that we, we, we go down that line of having to identify mm. uh, somebody in that way.
2: I think you're right. I think I'm identifying them because I'm thinking in academic terms, right? But in a normal conversation, like he wouldn't come out and say, I'm a Jewish man from Halab. He would come out, he's, well, he is coming out saying, this is Halabi music, you know, this is music of my heritage. And actually that brings me, I, I did a very powerful interview with a, a Syrian Halabi Jewish man who's, who's in New York right now. And one of the things he said to me, he said, you know, Dunya, I'm Halabi, I'm not Jewish. You know really it was so powerful to me that, you know, at the end of the day it comes down to the locality, where where you were raised, what you were surrounded with, the people you grew up with. That's that's I think what matters more in terms of self-identification rather than confession. I know confession is also very important, but I think I think in this modern world we put so much emphasis on, you know, this empirical box that everything goes into a category and, and everyone has a place, you know. And
0: we push people. We push people to one aspect of their identity. You know, right. we have multiple identities, Syrian, Halabi, male, Jewish, Muslim, whatever. But actually today, we tend to want to push one aspect of identity, and normally it's the religious one. And I suppose your research is showing that that is, is a force binary or?
2: Maybe not a false binary, not to that extreme, but I think there are other elements in self-identification that are just as powerful as religious confession. I think that's what I'm discovering, you know. And that, I think, this collective Arabic identity has power to to bring the different faith communities together in the region. And I'm when meant. there's
0: conflict, of course, yeah. it's, it's even more important. I mean, you, you mentioned, Matthew, that it can be a bit wishy-washy, you know, we're all musicians together you know, but when the context is conflict, then it really is important. I mean, does that...
1: Tell us about your research. Yeah, so my research is looking at intercultural musical dialogue between Spaniards and Moroccans, um, particularly in Andalusia. So a region such as Andalusia has quite a large Moroccan population, um, obviously because of the geographical proximity of of Morocco to Spain, but also because of some sort of idea of a shared cultural and and religious heritage. So I'm sure you'll be well aware, Ed, of this notion of, you know, convivencia of coexistence in medieval Spain, of interfaith dialogue, and between Christians and Muslims, slightly romanticised, romanticized, probably highly romanticised, <laughs> um, and has been picked apart by left and right by historians, of course. I'm not interested in any sort of historical validity. I'm interested in well, what are the, should we say, political and social uses of, of that idea of, of interfaith dialogue and coexistence in, in Muslim Spain. And sometimes it's used as a way to connect different musical cultures. Um, So in my case, flamenco and Arab and Lucian music, which are styles believed to have originated in Muslim Spain that now exist across the Maghreb, that I'm sure you're aware of. So in the sort of context of Moroccan immigration, you've started to see quite a lot of these fusion projects emerge.
0: What sort of period Um, are you talking about?
1: My project takes historical and contemporary focus. So historical under Spanish colonialism, because of course Spain had a a protectorate in in North Africa and in in Morocco um, in the middle of the 20th century and a lot of these ideas of a shared Spanish-Arab brotherhood or Christian-Muslim brotherhood were formulated under Spanish colonialism. But I also look at it in the contemporary context and how institutions use music to promote dialogue, what are some of the problems with that, are they actually effective in, in sort of reaching Moroccan communities and so on and so forth. And the problems that you've identified, what, what, what sort of problems? I think sometimes particularly at the level of sort of these big institutional projects that are held in Spain. For example, There's a Fundación Tres Culturas, a foundation of three cultures in in Seville. And they have a lot of sort of Spanish-Moroccan musical exchanges where they draw on this idea of a shared cultural and religious heritage. More often than not, who are the people who attend? Middle-class Spaniards. You know, you you don't often find Moroccans. Yes, they're involved, of course, they're performers, but you don't often find those communities being attracted to those sorts of events. So there's a sort of question to, to the extent to which these sort of ideas of And is that because there's a sort of colonial element, you, know, yeah, you know, sort of the Spanish sort of, sort of orientalist you know, um, yeah, view of it? Yeah, I, absolutely. I think there is. we need to take this somewhat critical angle. And I think Spanish colonialism, I mean, there's a lot of great post-colonial scholarship recently that effectively argues that the idea of a Spanish-Arab brotherhood and the idea of convivencia was dare I say, a Spanish invention under, under colonialism. Um, it was kind of a rereading of, of, of history. Um, and you start to see a lot of writers, intellectuals, um, in various spheres in music, in, in philosophy, in, in poetry and so on, who were sort of promoting the idea as a way, arguably, of legitimising Spanish rule.
0: Is there also that in...
1: in um, uh in the Arab world, where music can be used to
0: legitimise rule, mm. um, because I, I, I think that sometimes music's done as a way to reassert identity. Sometimes it's very much associated with Israel and Zionism, mm-hmm. um, and it has a political agenda. Mm-hmm. Are, is, is, are there any echoes in? in, in yeah, your
2: world? I, I would say, especially during the 20th century, when like the rise of Arab nationalism really was at its peak. It, there's, you know, very famous, uh, like for example, the diva of, of Egypt and the Arab world during that time. I mean, she was able to really create the sense of this is what it means to, to be an Arab, you know, but like through her music, through her performances. And she toured all over the Middle East. And I think in particular, when I think it was after the, um, the loss of, of the war against Israel, I think it was in '67, um, you know she was so devastated by, by this news that she did a special tour around the Arab world to kind of raise morale, you know through just her musical performance, you know, like a reminder that we're Arabs, we're still you know this is our heritage, we're still important, we're still powerful. So I think definitely yeah there it has been used to legitimize kind of this Arab nationalism.
3: Yeah, just just to go back to Point uh, briefly, um, you were saying quite rightly that this can be all a bit wishy-washy and the middle class loving to listen to music and so on. But um, the thing about his orchestra is, and he says this very straightforwardly, that you, you have to, if you're in an orchestra, you have to play and you have to listen. And the first step for Palestinians and Jewish musicians is to listen to each other playing mm. surely that, that should do something It's, it's, it it's like
0: up. a concept isn't it yeah. you know and it's a bit like going back to Pontanama where the idea yes. you sing your enemy's song is such a
1: powerful concept uh, yes, or yes. you have
0: to play mm. with somebody else who you know you have to listen to them and how, oh. they're, how how they're playing
1: yeah absolutely and this is what fascinates me actually leaving aside you know some of the more critical issues and whether you know the right audiences are going or what have you yeah. it's the actual act of music making itself mm. that is most fascinating. Yeah. Um, and in my context, arguably, um, this sort of musical exchange can be a way for Moroccans to, dare I say, integrate within Andalusian society with some sort of shared currency, if you see what I mean. Um, so I think it could be quite a powerful thing, a way of sort of crossing those boundaries, particularly between communities that are often seen to be at odds or culturally incompatible or what have you. And I think in my context, there's been a lot more of these projects almost as a not often explicitly but sometimes as a response to Islamophobia um, which of course is is, you know rising all over the world and in Spain notably as well so you know I think it's important to view these sorts of projects in in that broader context. So do you find the music is a kind of antidote
0: because people recognise I mean, we, we said earlier that there's no such thing as Muslim music or Christian <laughs> music or Jewish music, but here you're saying that this music can actually provide an antidote to Islamophobia.
1: We get, that- we get to a, a bit of a catch-22 here, don't we? I <laughs> think you're, you're often creating very monolithic, homogeneous mm. versions of Christianity, Islam, whatever, in order to prove a political point, as what of them is referred to as strategic essentialism, to use, you know, academic nonsense we're impressed <laughs> <laughs> um so sometimes it can be a necessity to reach the sorts of communities that otherwise may not be one in, y-
0: in your case they're more national and cultural and in mm-hmm. dunya's work it's more religious in terms of mm-hmm. trying to squeeze out or not squeeze out tease out um the the, the, the different tensions uh, mm-hmm. is that fair to say or, or not
2: i th- i'm not, maybe not specifically religious but i just kind of seeing where that transfer takes place in, in the local communities, you know, and, and how this shared idea of Arabic music really was shared across the various faith confessions in, in the localities in the Middle East. And what about now though? Because obviously we're dealing
0: with significant numbers of Syrian and an Iraqi refugees who bring with them, of course, the traditions from the societies. From where they came, including music,
2: mm-hmm.
0: um, and that music remains. In fact, I'd imagine is pretty important to their identity of who they are.
2: Right, and and that's what the project is exploring right now. Just seeing what happens to this music as it people move into diaspora, which parts of it do they take, which parts of it do they transform, develop, you know, how is the host community influencing the interactions and And being influenced by, I guess. And being influenced by it also, yes.
3: Yeah, the the interesting thing about the jazz development, it's it's slightly in the other direction. Early jazz started off as, um, I think it was Napoleon who said, the marriage of Figaro is the revolution already in action, just sort of very quietly asserting this culture Mm. but then it was like the civil rights movement already in action and it got more and more vocal and angry as it went on until in the 60s Max Roach the great bebop drummer made a record which was just drumming and a woman screaming which was an extraordinary record and I had to um, contact him just after he'd done this I got his telephone number and rang him up, and he answered the phone, and I thought, God, this is it's the great man. <laughs> this is going to be terrible. I explained who I was, and I was on the BBC. As a there was a long pause, and he said, "Why don't I come down and visit you to save you the trouble of coming out here?" <laughs> oh, so, I mean, it was completely charming. But um, it did become very vocal and explicit in its civil rights uh, manifestation.
0: I mean, in the jazz. Well, things have there's been all these sort of transitions, haven't there? Different mm-hmm. moments in history and different groups getting involved, you know, since the what are the the teens or the twenties, nineteen twenties, through to the present day. Do you have any sense of how something like Arab music that is is being brought over at the moment to, to Europe in a way that never has been before, maybe if we exclude Andalusia, certainly to, 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 to the UK. How, have you got any sense of what that might be like in 20 years time, whether it becomes British in the way that somehow, you know, other, other national forms of music or cultural forms of music have transferred from one group to another?
3: I think with jazz, what, what you've got, you've got a quite interesting return to what was its African roots. So so you have South African jazz, which has taken a lot from American jazz, but which is a sort of return to African roots. And you have a a Latin American element which has come in. Dizzy Gillespie was a great uh, proponent of Cuban jazz.
0: Yeah, but you also have, don't you, people like I don't know, I think just when as you were speaking, I was thinking of Paul Simon and Graceland, who oh, yeah, yeah, went so. over to South and Africa there, yeah. and then produced this amazing record. Yeah. Um, so you have the sort of uh, I don't know if you use the word indigenous, but sort of people who then sort of take on and really integrate this music to the whole society
3: yeah well that i mean that's an extraordinary record it and is got, he got a lot of stick he because did. I was about of to say, he was doing like yeah, yeah, it yeah
1: absolutely and there's a remuneration for musicians involved was somewhat problematic. I think. <laughs> right. so there's a lot right. of, sort of power differentials going That's such an interesting question there,
0: though, Matthew, <laughs> in terms of, you know, that, that issue of music overcoming the sort of political situation mm. or not,
1: or yeah. being caught up in the boycott question. Sure, I think this is one of the problems you often find musicians who, or projects that really don't want to be politicised in any way, but because of the materials that they're using, often become politicised. Mm. I was dealing with a Project in Valencia, there was a group of Mediterranean musicians who had been brought together to reinterpret the legend of Zirab, which you may have heard of as a... I've uh, never heard uh, of, no, okay, of it. Okay, so a lute player who had uh, exiled from Baghdad in the 9th century, ended up in, in Al-Andalus and is said to have sort of contributed to the development of Arab Andalusian music. Um, and this particular project was trying to reinterpret the Z- Zirab legend, it was called Zirab and Us. And there was an Israeli musician, there was a Moroccan musician, a couple of Spanish musicians and a French musician. Now, the whole project was packaged as being apolitical and they really didn't want it to be a political enterprise. It was meant to be a way for young Mediterranean musicians to use their own musical heritage and try to create you know, dialogues in creative and innovative ways. Now, of course, the context in which they performed became political. They performed at Casa Arabe, which is a sort of cultural institution that is meant to promote interfaith dialogue, particularly between Christianity and, and Islam, but more specifically between Spain and the Arab world. And of course it became politicised an yeah. event. So it, it's tricky, you know, the, the wishes of musicians and the ways in which music is used often differs quite greatly, I think. Is but that should,
3: should musicians be apolitical in, in that sense? I, I, do you think they should? Or is it okay for a musician to to promote some sort of political
1: styles. They're human beings, though. Yeah, yeah they're yeah. human beings. I think it's, yeah. it's down to the musician, but it's often the way it's used. But another good example, you were talking about whether sort of Arab influence, Arab music influence on, on jazz and so on. And there was a musician I recently interviewed in, in London, Atab Haddad, who's an Iraqi musician. He was born in Britain, he's British. And he now fuses traditional Arab music or his own compositions based on hood styles with jazz and flamenco and various other forms. He sees himself very much like as British, as a cosmopolitan, should we say. Um, And he doesn't like the ways that he's sometimes forced into sort of fitting a particular box. Um, He's been called by Islamic organisations in in the country. He's secular. Um, He's been, you know, contacted by Islamic organisations to promote the community and so on. So, you know, there's issues there of how his music is being used to to Mm. suit certain representations of identity or faith and, and so on
0: is that true also in I mean in your work the the, the politicization it must be a challenge and because I mean you're really doing dealing with with tricky issues don't you
2: yeah um, I have come across some some difficulties where some searing musicians as soon as they find out that they're they um, are not so much that there's the Jewish element that we're looking at but if like Israel is mentioned at all gets really really tricky for them not necessarily because they are anti-Israel but just because if it is known to the Syrian audience that this musician played with an Israeli musician you know the career ends right there, you know. It's heartbreaking at times though,
0: isn't it? Mm -hmm. The, The work that we're all doing, that we're all involved in, which is, you know, fostering understanding between religion and society through education it's one of the challenges we have is getting over politicians who want to do the exact opposite. And actually, I don't know if it's fair just to attack the politicians. I think it's part of the flawed human condition Mm. that we, you know, if we feel under pressure, we tend to retreat into who we are over and against who we're not. Mm -hmm. Um, And maybe, and I speak as somebody who was awful at the trombone, but maybe (laughs) um, music can... No, um, no, no, no.
3: no.
0: Oh, thank (laughs) you, David. I was waiting for that. Uh, In fact, one time I, I share a story uh, I left the trombone on the tube when I was coming home from school. <laughs> right. This is in the seventies when there were, there were a lot of um, a number of IRA bombs. <laughs> and I didn't think twice about it. And I came home, and my mother and she came home for said, Oh, Mom, I've left my trombone on the tube. Anyway, we went up to Southgate Tube Station, which is at the end of the Piccadilly line. Hadn't the police come and closed the station? Oh, God. Yeah, I know. Because they opened the, 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 the tube, uh, a trombone. Uh, obviously, looks a little bit like a weapon. Yeah. And they, oh, they opened it, but they couldn't see the trombone because it was covered with some sheet or something. Oh, God. Oh, I had such a terrible telling off. I still got the scars. <laughs> so music can be very painful. <laughs> very painful. I'm sure your playing wasn't that bad.
3: <laughs> it
0: was pretty bad. But this brings us towards uh, uh, towards the end of our, our podcast. Um, and I suppose the, uh, I think we have to end with you. identity identifying one musician who is somebody who can change the world through his or her music
2: wow there's <laughs> no pressure no pressure at all
3: i've mentioned uh, but so now i'll mention a scottish composer who works in a very traditional religious way called james MacMillan. He, he's catholic and he writes wonderful inspiring choral stuff He's still quite a young man, and I find his music very moving. But but I'm also very encouraged by the, the ability of people now to listen to music of all sorts, to download music, and people are interested in different sorts of music. And I think that's a very encouraging, encouraging thing the for the for future. David. Yeah.
0: Thank you. Uh, let me share one that I, I was so moved by uh, the Pontanama visit mm. you mentioned at Dunya, not just by the concept of singing your enemy's songs, but just seeing and listening and watching these people do it in here in Cambridge or in London or at Durham Cathedral. And it gave me such hope that in a conflict situation, I'm aware of the wishy-washiness critique and the vacuous nature of of dialogue, and it can be, you know, samosas and and smoked salmon and cream cheese bagels and all (laughs) of that. But that was a moment when I really got how music can change
3: the world. Perhaps whilst you're thinking, there's another brief example I could, which I find incredibly moving. Um, there's a recording of a live performance of the Seventh, made by William Freutwangler in Berlin in 1945. And it's, it's almost like between air raids, you, you, you have this sense of ter- incredible peril. And it's, it's a performance of the most intense tragedy. But it's Van Wangler, who wasn't a Nazi. He, he didn't leave, but he wasn't a Nazi. And he helped a lot of Jewish musicians get out. And it's almost like um, a profound feeling of sort of human folly and human suffering. I do commend it to you. Do. It's the most extraordinary performance. Thank you.
2: You know, I think of one of my role models, who is Marion Alsop. Um, she's the conductor of the, of the Baltimore Symphony Orchestra. And she is really using her position to just do a lot of really incredible work. Um, like she just recently premiered Malik Jandali's uh, Syrian Symphony, which you know she commissioned from him. He's, he's a Syrian um, pianist and composer, now based in the U.S. And she did it purely just because of this, you know, the scene around Syria right now and all of the, the refugees and all of that. And she wanted to kind of use music to tap into that and to really say something about, um, you know, the beauty of Syrian culture. Because Malik Jendali borrows a lot of traditional Syrian tunes and mixes it with like symphonic Western composition. So anyways, you know, that's an example to me of how you can use music to do a lot more than just entertain. I find that very moving and very powerful, Absolutely. and also she's a woman. Cool. Uh, yes, thank you. <laughs>
1: Going on the same sort of theme of reconciliation and intercultural projects and interreligious projects, I probably have to say someone like Jordi Saval, Saval um, or Pani Agua, and So these sort of com- these performers who have sort of promoted the early European medieval music and its connections with Arab and Lucian music across the Strait of Gibraltar in North Africa, and they've done a, a range of sort of really fascinating. Um, reconstructions of music from the medieval period that shows the connections between different musical repertoires or different cultural and religious repertoires. So I think, yeah, for me, Jordi Saval is one. A wonderful way to end this podcast. So
0: thank you to my guests, Matthew Machen-Ortarit, Dunya Habash and David Perry. Next time, we'll be looking at religion and refugees. Thanks for listening.